Matthew 1, 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matin, and Matin the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, good morning to you and happy new year, 2022. It's good to see you all. My name is Josh Maurer. I'm the pastor of discipleship here. I just want to remind you, as we've already heard, Pastor Moody's not here, but also just remind you to be praying for him today and tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning he has his procedure, but he is uh, very confident that he'll be back this next Sunday, January 9th, to start off his new series. But do, do please pray for him. So this morning, our focus will be on Jesus' genealogy from Matthew 1 that Pastor Dan just read out for us. Now you might wonder, why kick the new year off with a genealogy? I mean, a genealogy. Why kick off the new year with Jesus' genealogy? It's a good question. For many people... Genealogies are those sections of the Bible that are either skimmed quickly or skipped entirely. There's no action. The names are difficult to pronounce. Good job, Pastor Dan. They seem practically irrelevant to life. Shouldn't we rather be starting off the new year with more of a bang, more of a power text of sorts? 
Well, I have two reasons for why I chose this text for today. First, being still close to Christmas, it makes sense to think about Jesus' lineage, especially when one considers that his genealogy is probably the, the aspect of the Christmas story that receives the least attention during the month of December leading up to Christmas. And second, and more importantly, this genealogy, I will argue, is explosive in what it affirms about God's purposes in redemptive history. Not only through Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, but also his family tree. Specifically, it brings us right to the heart of the gospel. The good news that Jesus, in fulfillment of the promise to Abraham that the world would be blessed through him, the good news that Jesus has come to save people from their sins. Hence, the title of my sermon, The Glory of Grace in the Genealogy of Jesus. And what better way to begin the new year than to be reminded of the glory and the centrality of grace, which we've already been doing so far in our service. So let's pray and ask for God's help as we get into the text. Father, we just ask that you would impress upon our hearts this morning the wonder of grace through this text, through taking a few moments to think about Jesus's lineage. And we ask that you do it by your spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I wonder, as the passage was read out, did you notice, did you catch the inclusion of four noteworthy and notorious women, excepting Mary? If you include Mary, there's five, but excepting Mary, for our purposes this morning, there's four. Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, and the wife of Uriah, also known as Bathsheba, in verse 6. All of them were foreigners, Gentiles. They're non-Israelites. Tamar committed an act of prostitution, and Rahab was a prostitute, we're told. Bathsheba was the victim of sexual assault by King David. And so the questions just start flooding our minds at this point. Why are these particular women included in Jesus' genealogy? How can the Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Emmanuel, God with us, have this as part of his family history? What does it imply about God's providential purposes in redemptive history? And what is Matthew's purpose in including the names of these women in the genealogy of Jesus, since Luke's gospel does not? All good questions. And in order to begin answering these questions, we're going to take a tour through the Old Testament where these women's stories are recounted. And so I want you to imagine with me this morning that we're getting on a cruise ship, which sounds wonderful actually about this time right now. But imagine with me that we're getting on a cruise ship. Matthew 1 is our point of departure, and we'll be stopping along the way at four different ports of call. Genesis 38, Joshua 2, the book of Ruth, and 2 Samuel 11, all before returning back to Matthew. 
Now, obviously, uh, with that much to cover, these will be more like short excursions rather than extended stays. I'll do my best to summarize and get us the main thrust of the story, but there will be lots of details that we will not have time to, to dig into. So first, turn in your Bibles back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter 38. This is our first port of call, and we'll see the story of Judah and Tamar here. This comes in the, in the middle of the larger Joseph narrative, Genesis chapters 37 to 50. And so the author inserts this little story about Judah and Tamar here in the middle of the Joseph story in order to draw attention to it, in order to highlight its significance and its importance for us. And so if you're there, Genesis chapter 38, I'll summarize a little bit and then we'll pick up reading some verses as well. Judah marries a foreign woman, and he has three sons, Ur, his firstborn, Onan, and Shelah. He ends up taking a wife for Ur, his firstborn, whose name was Tamar. So, there's Tamar. This is the the, the Tamar that appears in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1. Tamar, then, is Judah's daughter-in-law. Judah is Tamar's father-in-law. In the course of time, Ur, the firstborn, is wicked. The Lord puts him to death. The secondborn, Onan, is wicked. The Lord puts him to death. And as it was customary in that day and part of the law for Israel, if there was another brother in the family, their responsibility was to then marry the, the former brother's wife and provide offspring for him in his name. And Judah, just seeing two of his sons die, decides, I'm going to withhold Shelah, my third son, from Tamar. He probably thinks there's some kind of curse or something going on with Tamar, and he says, nah, I don't want to lose my third son, so I'm not going to give him to her, even though he should. And he says, well, we'll just wait, wait till Shelah grows up more, and then I'll give him to you. Of course, he doesn't. Tamar recognizes this and devises a plot, you could say. In the course of time, Judah's wife dies, and so he decides to go up to Timnah. On his way up to Timnah, he sees this woman by the road. He thinks she's a prostitute, and he decides he wants to sleep with her. What he doesn't know is that this woman is his daughter-in-law. It is Tamar. She has dressed herself up and concealed her identity, does end up sleeping with him, receives a few things from him as a pledge, He promises to then send her other things later. And that's where we'll pick up reading the story. Genesis chapter 38, verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. And when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb, And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. 
But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Hmm. Shocking story. Tamar is recognized here in the text as the righteous one. Did you see that in verse 26? Even after her morally questionable act. Now, this text isn't intended or designed to answer some of our questions that we would have, like ethical questions. Like, does the end justify the means? Righteous. Hmm. Rather, this text is meant, it's intended to show us the sovereignty of God even over sin in making sure that the seed of Judah, the royal line, would be preserved, thereby paving the way for the Messiah. That's why verses 27 to 30 conclude this story with the birth of Perez. Perez, of course, becomes the ancestor of King David, and King David is, of course, the ancestor of the Messiah, of Jesus. The main point of this story is that from such an unsavory union, and that's what it was, God saw to it that the Messianic line would be preserved. It's just a stunning thing to consider. Well, we have more to see, much more to see, and we have to go to our next destination to see it. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles a little bit further forward to Joshua chapter 2. This is our second port of call. We're moving a few hundred years ahead in the biblical story. The Israelites are poised to enter the promised land, and Joshua has been commissioned to lead them. Moses has since died. Joshua has taken over leadership. And we come to chapter 2. Joshua decides to send in two spies to scope out the land. And the the king hears about this, and he decides he's going to send some men to this town of Jericho where he heard they, they showed up to see where they are, and he wants to ferret them out. Well, the Israelite spies end up coming to a woman's house by the name of Rahab, who the text identifies as a prostitute. And what Rahab ends up doing is hiding the spies, story is well known, and then she lies to the king's men that come looking for them, saying, oh, they've already left. Go that way, you'll find them. All the while, she's hid them on the roof. So let's pick up the text and the story in verse 8. Before the men, the spies, that is, lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. 
And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And that's exactly what ends up happening. So it's another marvelous, shocking story. Rahab, the prostitute in Jericho, and by naming her that, and by thinking about the wider context that we're in of Jesus' genealogy, we're immediately reminded of Genesis 38 and Tamar, who committed an act like that. Rahab also in the narrative is clearly a Gentile, also like Tamar. Now, Rahab clearly lies to the king's men who were looking for the two Israelite spies. But once again, the text is not intended to adjudicate a kind of ethical dilemma for us, like is it ever permissible or morally appropriate to lie? Another version, if you will, of does the end justify the means. The text isn't designed or intended to answer that kind of question for us. Rather, it's designed again for showing us the sovereignty of God. The text clearly commends Rahab for protecting the spies, but is silent with regard to her methods. How God is working in and behind the scenes, we we get at by seeing what her response is and what her motivation is for hiding the spies in the first place. Did you catch it as we read it? The reason why she hides them is because she has heard about Yahweh. She's heard about the true God. She's heard that the land already belongs to Israel. She recognizes that Yahweh is the true Lord, the true God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And I think the author intends for us to understand by this that she has sworn allegiance to Yahweh. And as a result, she and her family are spared. And what's more, the books of Hebrews and James in the New Testament They explicitly refer to her as a champion of faith and as a model of good works. Again, that's just stunning. This foreigner, this prostitute, yet this is the line of Jesus. This is the line of the Messiah. But there's still more to see. For according to Matthew, remember, Rahab is a direct ancestor of Boaz, who marries Ruth. And so, let's turn over to the book of Ruth now, our third port of call, if you will. The book of Ruth. A book in so many ways, a shining light, a bright shining light in the dark days of the judges, when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's so many beautiful and surprising threads to this story, and it's because of all these threads that one commentator suggests that it may be the most beautiful short story ever written. If you're not familiar with it, I just encourage you to go home today and read it. And if you are familiar with it, go home and read it and immerse yourself in it more and see all the beautiful sovereign threads of what God is up to in that story. Here, I'll just summarize it and emphasize a few key aspects for us. The story itself, the book of Ruth, 
is the flesh and blood experience of a family living the unexpected plan of God. From Naomi's pain in the beginning, great loss, to her joy at the end of the story, all throughout centered on the preservation of her husband's lineage through Ruth and Boaz's child, Obed, who, of course, becomes the grandfather of King David. Notice the end of the story, the end of the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, it's referring to Ruth, who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Now don't forget who Perez is. Perez is the son of Judah and Tamar. Back from Genesis 38. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Again, the focus of this story, the main thrust, there are lots of other things about this book, but the main thrust, the main point, is the preservation of a particular royal lineage, the lineage of David, despite all kinds of earthly obstacles. And what is stunning for us to see again is that this line of the Messiah, the line of David here, is not wholly pure in the sense of containing only Israelites. We might think that would be the case, that the Messiah would come from a rich, respectable heritage, lineage of pure Israelites. But that's not the case. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Gentiles, foreigners, part of the line of the Messiah. Ruth, she's a Moabite. She's a pagan. But she commits to Naomi and, as chapter 1 tells us, she commits to Yahweh and then finds herself providentially drawn into the lineage of Christ. What a story. What a story. Ruth, the person in the book that bears her name, powerfully testifies to the gospel of God's grace with its aim of bringing sinners from every tribe, language, people, and tongue into his people. Think about it. Ruth, a foreigner, is a book in the Jewish Old Testament canon of Scripture. It's marvelous. And as such, it points beyond itself to the mystery of God that becomes even clearer when Christ comes. Namely, the mystery of the inclusion of Gentiles, most of us, I dare say, if not all of us in this room, into the people of God. Well, we have one final stop to make on our cruise before we head back home, and that is 
2 Samuel chapter 11 to the David and Bathsheba story. So go ahead and turn there. A couple books over. 2 Samuel chapter 11. The story of David and Bathsheba, or as Matthew refers to her, the wife of Uriah. And so let's get into the story. Verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Well, then David tries to cover it up. Look at verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And that is, in fact, what happens. Pick it up in verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Another shocking story. Seems to be a theme. Now we can see from the beginning of this story that it's probably not going to be a good situation. We're told at the time when kings go out to battle, David, the king stayed at Jerusalem. Idle hands are the devil's playground. And sure enough, David sins and takes another man's wife, Bathsheba, and sleeps with her. And then she ends up getting pregnant, and she tells David. And from there, David descends into what can only be described as all manner of stupidity as he tries to cover up his sin. It goes from bad to worse, including the murder of her husband. You know, we read stories like this in the Bible, our hearts just sink, don't they? Our hearts break for Bathsheba, who the narrative makes clear was a victim of David. She also had to grieve the loss of her husband, murdered by David. She also had to grieve the loss of that child who was killed because of David's sin. That was the Lord's righteous judgment on David's sin, the loss of that child. So our hearts break for her. And we feel a kind of righteous anger at David. He's the king. He should know better than this. He's the leader of Israel. He's described elsewhere in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. What is going on? We feel that. We're also disheartened by the fact that 
It's the leader who acts so egregiously. Well, there are a lot of lessons in this text for us to consider. That would be very worthwhile. But what I want us to do is I want us to fixate on how God's righteousness, mercy, and providence, yes, providence, are all on display in this text. God's righteousness is displayed in that David is is punished for his sin. Chapter 12 goes on to recount this. The child from that initial encounter with Bathsheba dies according to the word of the Lord, and David weeps because of it. God's mercy is displayed in that Solomon, the wisest king in all of Israel's history, is born shortly thereafter to David and Bathsheba. And providentially, it is through this relationship between David and Bathsheba, which without question began in an evil way, nevertheless, providentially, God weaves through it together the lineage of His Son. The way God works is a mystery to us at many times. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, four noteworthy and notorious women whose stories are now forever inseparable from Jesus, occupying as they do significant and important places in his very lineage. And so, why are they included? Why does Matthew include them? And what does this tell us about God and his purposes in redemptive history? Well, now that we've finished our destinations, we're returning back to Matthew 1, and we'll answer some of these questions and we'll draw out some implications for us as we head into 2022. First, I think Matthew includes these women in Jesus' genealogy and in the way that he tells his story of Jesus, he intends that we should acknowledge and rejoice and be strengthened in God's wise providence in working all things according to his redemptive plan. All things, even in great mystery, the sinful, egregious, and justly accountable acts of human beings. I think that's why Matthew includes these women and these stories highlighting God's providential working. I think that also is clear through this constant refrain that Matthew has in the first two chapters of this gospel. He has it elsewhere, but especially in these first two. This refrain of such and such happened in order to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet or some kind of other variation of that motif. The lineage of Jesus, the virgin birth, the birth in Bethlehem, the holy family's flight to Egypt, Herod's killing of male children under two years old and growing up in Nazareth, all of those events, acts, all are part of God's redemptive plan 
for the world through his son. They were foretold ages ago, Matthew says, and now they have happened in fulfillment of what God said. That is a a window for us to see the providential working of God and, and then to rejoice in it and to be strengthened by it. Nothing can thwart God's plan. Rejoice in it and be strengthened by that truth. Second implication, to those of you here this morning who are Christians and yet you have recently fallen into sin, maybe egregiously so, take heart. If you have truly repented and trusted in Christ, then he has borne your condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And if you continue to repent and turn to the Lord, confess your sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive you and cleanse you. Like David, as a Christian, you are forgiven. You are justified. You are reconciled to God. You are one of his children, full stop. And though you view with painful and appropriate regret the pain that your sin personally, relationally caused, and though you experience the just and right consequences in this life for such sin, remember to keep your eyes open. It is like God to bring something unexpectedly good out of it. Remember David and Bathsheba. Remember Jesus. I want you to drive this truth deep into your soul this morning. Pray that God would do it for you. The grace of God is stronger than the sin of man. The grace of God is stronger than the sin of man. Finally, to those of you here this morning who've never received Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your treasure, you don't consider yourself a Christian. Maybe you're here today simply to give church one more try. It's a new year. I'll give it one more try. Maybe you're here because you realize something is out of alignment in your life and you are trying to figure out what it is. Maybe you're here simply because a friend invited you to be here. Maybe you're here because your guilt is crushing you and you're looking for relief. Maybe you're here because life is just hard and you're looking for help. Whatever the reason, I'm glad you're here. We are glad you're here. This message is for you. Do not think that you are too bad or too far gone to receive the grace of God. Don't say to yourself right now, oh, pastor, you... You don't know what I've done in my life. You don't know my past. You don't know the things I've done. There's no way God would accept me. Matthew tells us explicitly that Jesus was born to save people from their sins. In fact, what we've seen is his lineage peppered as it is with these unsavory yet remarkable stories that we've looked at. That very lineage underscores this point in all caps, bold, font. Jesus is the Savior. 
of all kinds of people. The genealogy of Jesus trumpets the grace of God. Prostitution cannot overcome the grace of God. Abuse, adultery cannot overcome the grace of God. Being a foreigner, an outsider, an outcast cannot overcome the grace of God. At the end of the day, the answer to why these women appear in the genealogy of Jesus is to foreshadow the glory of God's grace coming to all people of all sorts of backgrounds and races. To receive it, you simply need to acknowledge your sin, confess it to the Lord, turn away from it to Him, entrust yourself to Him, and you will be forgiven. That's the gospel. You will have salvation. And friends, there is no better way to begin a new year than that. As one author sums up this passage, he says, God's grace in Jesus the Messiah reaches beyond Israel to Gentiles, beyond men to women, beyond the self-righteous to sinners. In saving his people from their sins, Jesus is not bound by race, gender, or scandal. He's not bound by that. And so, College Church, as we begin 2022, let us rejoice in the glory of the gospel of the grace of God as demonstrated here in the most unlikely of places, Jesus' own family tree. And let us be a church that cherishes His grace and speaks it, proclaims it in our community. Let us allow His grace to birth authentic community among us where each of us can put away the need to perform and put on a face, acting like everything is perfect when we know it's not. Instead, by truly experiencing His grace and by being agents of grace to one another, let's pursue growth, spiritual growth and joy as we watch God work in us and through us to accomplish His purposes in us this year for His glory. Let's pray. Yes, Lord, that's what we're asking for. We're pleading for, for you to so work in us this year that we would continually be amazed by your grace toward us as sinners and that the experience of such grace would unleash authentic community among us in a radical, risk-taking self-sacrificial bent where we move toward need. Where we move toward those who need the gospel. God, make us a church increasingly more so who loves the gospel of grace. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.